Army veteran Brad Harrison from Scout Ventures invests heavily in tech startups. Coming up next, I'm Veteran on the Move. Welcome to Veteran on the Move. If you're a veteran in transition, an entrepreneur wannabe, or someone still stuck in that J-O-B trying to escape, this podcast is dedicated to your success. And now, your host, Joe Crane. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal. Navy Federal has a mission to put your members first by making their financial goals a priority. You can receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions. It's open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members, including over 1 million veterans and their families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash VeteranMove for more information. All right. Welcome, Brad Harrison, to the show. Before we get to talking about business and entrepreneurship, take us back. Tell us what you did in the Army. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, when I was in the Army, I was an Airborne Ranger. So I went to uh, West Point undergrad. So I had actually gone to uh, Airborne school back when I was still in college and uh, got stationed at the 25th was a uh, light infantryman for most of my career, cross-trained at Bragg and went back to the 25th as the G5 or the assistant G5. I think I actually held both roles Mm -hmm. and then transitioned out. Um, I love the military, but the idea of uh, spending a lot of time without being in small units and around troops, staff time didn't sound that enjoyable. Yeah, the, the cool fun stuff quickly fades after your first few years sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had an amazing uh, career. I was very blessed with uh, good NCOs and good enlisted people around me that always are critical to making you achieve your goal. So I was super lucky and I got to go to some amazing places a couple times in Thailand, Japan, Australia. Um, and then I ran a mission on uh, Wake Island, and so I spent uh, 49 days in the mid-Pacific as part of a task force running a mission. So it was a pretty, uh, pretty enjoyable time. Awesome. Well, can you talk a little bit about what your transition out of the Army was all about, and did you know it was coming, or were you planning ahead? Yeah, so I kind of, uh, you know, my goal was I wanted to go to a ranger bat and try to go to smaller elite teams, whether that be special forces or Delta, you know, for whatever reason, timing, availability, you know, it just didn't work out. And so I decided I was going to get out. Originally, I thought I was going to go right into business, so I kind of moved back to New York, and I was living on the couch of uh, two former um, Army officers that were my classmates who had transitioned into finance. So I thought I was going to go into finance right away, um, and then I wound up kind of pivoting within the first couple months and decided to go to grad school at MIT Sloan. Um, and you know, the, the idea was I knew I always wanted to build companies. Um, it was just kind of in me and I knew that the military had given me a lot of the skills around leadership and managing. Um, and what I was really looking for, you know, even though that I grew up as like a 
tech geek, right? I'm, I'm a little, I'm 47. So we literally had the first VHS, the first Betamax, the first cell phone, <laughs> the Apple 2C, 2E, uh, Commodore 64. So Atari, mm. right? Like I, I was, I lived the evolution of technology. And so I thought I had a really firm grasp. You know, I, I tell this story about, uh, you know, I remember having guard duty when I was a first lieutenant and, um, you know, actually like chatting with somebody while on duty via dial up AOL, you know, where it would make the old, you know, made all the crazy noise every 10 minutes. The 14,400 14, baud rate modem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I heard one of the, the greatest stories I heard, uh, you know, Mayor Bloomberg tell to kind of ingratiate himself with a group of entrepreneurs was he talked about when he started Bloomberg you know, flying to Chicago and having a closet that had a 2400 rate modem that would get stuck and would break the data link for all the Bloomberg. So they would fly <laughs> to Chicago and like, re- and, and Mike Bloomberg would reset it in the closet, you know? Wow. Um, so, you know, I, 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 and I've always seen Bloomberg as like an amazing example of, you know, what you do in terms of being an entrepreneur, having a vision, building a network, building a great company, you know, spends most of his money in philanthropy now, has done public service. I think he's a, you know, I happen to be Jewish. He's a, you know, gives a lot of money and is, you know, I think a good role model for entrepreneurship and service. So, but I picked MIT because I wanted people to think I was smart at tech. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think that probably works most of the time, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> well, how did how did the MIT thing come about? I mean, did you have a familiarity with MRT already, or has it always been a little childhood goal? Or you know, I, listen. Of of course, growing up, I I had spent a lot of time um, with my closest aunt, who's like my mom, Aunt Shelley, um, in Boston. So I've been going to Boston since I was five. So you know had always seen the dome, had always kind of been interested as a, you know, a young kid and as a high schooler in robotics and rockets and whatever. And so, you know, back then we didn't have the free flow of information, but the information that was out there that you could read in the library as a kid, I know most of our listeners probably don't even know, have been to the library. Um, (laughs) But, you know, back when you would go to a library to like learn about stuff, um, and MIT was always one of those places that, um, you know, was the center of innovation in so many different areas. And so, uh, you know, that was how I was familiar. And then one of my mentors who was um, in charge of the honors econ program at West Point, a guy named Tom Dalla, who after he finished his time at West Point, um, went into finance, I called him when I was kind of like struggling with what to do. And he said, you know, you should talk to the guys at MIT. I think you might be a fit. And so I, you know, made a phone call, sent in an application, and I think I was just a good fit for, you know, the class. So I'm really thankful that Rod Garcia at MIT gave me the opportunity. And, you know, now I've tried to help Rod, you know, find other good people. But it's an amazing institution. Yeah. So going from your 
your time at MIT and coming out of MIT, how was it that, uh, like, what was your experience at MIT and how did that propel you out of MIT into, into the entrepreneurial world? So, you know, I got to MIT in 1999. So it was the first dot-com bubble, right? Like everything that you could possibly imagine that people thought they would turn into tech, they turned into tech, right? It was before Google, right? It was AOL, Yahoo, you know, Ask Jeeves. It was, it was Web 1.0. Mm-hmm. And so that was going on while I was at MIT. And so people were dropping out, you know, a, a, a guy that we know was a, a first year when we were second years, he dropped out to fi- um, be the founder of a company called the Akamai, which turned out to be, you know, as a, a dominating power in, you know, web hosting and caching these days. Um, and so, you know, my friend Steve Papa, who had gone to Princeton undergrad and was roommates with my other best friend, Greg Parsons, Papa started a company. Um, it was originally called OptiGrab. He then renamed it Indeca, and it did finite data search for some of the largest e-commerce players. And he sold that to Oracle for a little over a billion dollars. Um, and so I was fortunate enough that Steve let me sit in the office as he built the company, right? I carried the first set of computers from his apartment to the first office, from the first office to the second office. He let me sit in venture capital meetings with, you know, Feldy, um, Feldy, uh, John Hummer, just all these amazing people from venture. I, I was just fortunate enough to get exposure. And then at MIT, I was a teaching assistant for a class called New Ventures. And the two visiting professors were Howard Anderson, who was the founder of the Yankee Group and uh, then went on and I think was one of the founders at Battery, and a guy named Todd Dagris, who was a partner at Battery and then went on to form Spark Capital. And Spark is one of the you know most successful venture firms. Um, and so I got to kind of sit in a room with those guys a couple times a day or a couple times a week and really get exposure. Um, so did a couple of deals with Todd, um, was involved in a company called Pure Tech Ventures early on, um, which is now publicly traded on the London Stock Exchange and does super early biotech. Um, so, you know, was just, uh, I used that military hustle, right? I wanted a learn as much as I could. So I turned myself on to a sponge, volunteered and, and worked real hard. Um, had a little bit of money from uh, my VA disability for vocational rehab. Um, so the army helped, uh, you know, pay for that transitioning education. I think first year they paid for a lot more than they did the second year. Uh, but it was very, very thankful for the military for doing that. And, um, you know, from there wound up graduating in the middle of a nuclear winter, right? Because then the market crashed, 9-11 happened. And so I went from the biggest heyday ever to an absolute like nuclear holocaust environment, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody was hiring, nobody was working. All my friends that were on active duty were in Iraq or Afghanistan or somewhere supporting one of those two regions. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so, you know, kind of floated for a year and then wound up getting a job at AOL in Dulles um, and moved down to AOL. My mentor, who was also in the military, is a guy named Dick Parsons, who was chairman of AOL Time Warner and Citigroup. And again, I mentioned earlier, Greg, um, who would be a great guy for you to talk to, actually runs a, a shop called Semper Capital Management. Uh, so fellow Marine, uh, my oldest best friend in the world. Um, and actually, his dad has been a mentor forever. And his dad kind of said, hey, listen, if you really want to you know, start companies, you need to understand how they operate when they're really, really big so that you understand what the bureaucracy of a huge public company is like, so that when you start selling your little companies into them, you'll be better positioned. So, um, you know, basically went and did an operator role at AOL. Um, in that, uh, had two really great mentors. One was a guy named Ed Fish, um, who was just you know, ex-lawyer, had done a bunch of IP work, just super, super bright and understood how to take creative entrepreneurial thinking and do things within corporations. And I found that amazing. And then the second one was a guy named Ted Leontis, who was the vice chairman um, and was fortunate enough to spend about seven months working kind of for Ted and you know, was just really great to see somebody, you know, Ted, super, super intelligent, personable, you know, owns the capital, I think owns part of the Wizards, just an amazing entrepreneur. Um, so just got lucky, had a couple of amazing roles at AOL, and then went back to the startup side to do biz dev for a company called Wenyu, which was one of the first behavioral contextual targeting companies. So, you know, the worst part of the product was probably pop-ups and pop-unders. The best part of the product was, you know, if you were looking for a cheap ticket, we could scrape the web and see where the prices were and give you the best offer inside of something. So uh, it was pretty cool. Thought that was going to go public. Market kind of turned on us around Privacy 1.0. And then I went out on my own. And uh, the rest is history. Within a few months when I first joined the Marine Corps, I became a Navy Federal member. That was over 29 years ago, and I still have the same account after 29 years. Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals a priority. You can receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions. A credit card APR average that is 4% lower than the industry's. Member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and perks access to over 300 branches and thousands of fee-free ATMs. They also have 24-7 live support through their U.S.-based call center. Navy Federal is open to active-duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members, including over 1 million veterans and their families. At Navy Federal Credit Union, their members are the mission. Visit NavyFederal.org slash Veteran Move for more information. That's NavyFederal.org slash Veteran Move for more info. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. All right, back talking with Brad Harrison for from Scout Ventures. So, so Brad, you had a lot of cool experiences uh, getting out of the Army, going to MIT, being around all these people that were even dropping out of MIT to go run companies, you know, the 
kind of like the Bill Gates and the Zuckerberg stories kind of thing, really. What and you've you've been investing in in some of these tech companies and stuff for a while now. Um, what what kind of things really jump out at you as a good idea when you're hearing the latest yeah. tech idea? I mean, do you, can you speak to that? Yeah. So there's a couple of things, which is there can be good ideas that are lifestyle businesses and then good ideas that are venture backable businesses. Those are, those are different things, right? So a lot of times when we hear from entrepreneurs that are veterans, they have an interesting, solid lifestyle business, yeah. right? And you know, a lot of times that's, you know, they want to own three franchises. They want to, you know, of, of something. They want to, you know, have a veteran moving company. You know, they and a lot of those things are are businesses that can make money. They're just not venture backable. And the reason they're not venture backable is there's just not enough scale or disruption in what they're doing, right? So for us, what what we do is, you know, we have a general philosophy around technologies that we're interested in, right? So we spend a lot of time looking at AI, cybersecurity, physical security, um, autonomy, mobility, robotics, drones. And so, for example, we hear a lot of really good drone ideas. But for us, the challenge is if you're going to go build your own drone in a box, that's going to take you five to 10 million of R&D money. And then if that product becomes a real product that you want to manufacture, it's going to take you another 25 to 75 million to set up manufacturing. For what Scout does, where we write checks between 500,000 and a million as a first check, that's too much capital for us. That we're just going to get diluted, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard for us to make money. So there's a lot of businesses that are interesting, but just don't fit our model because we just don't think we can make money. So for us, everything that we're doing around drones and a lot of the robotics is really around software, right? New controller systems, new ways of processing data. Um, and that's because we like this sector, right? We like the growth of the use of something like drones and autonomy, but we like the, the cap model or the, the, you know, the software model better than we like the hardware model. Mm, um, yeah. and so, you know, for us, I'll tell you what is, what is universal before we even get to the idea. You can normally tell in the way the entrepreneur carries themselves whether or not they're going to be successful regardless of the business, right? There, there is a level of excitement, confidence. Um, there's normally a plan. might not be the right plan, but there's a plan, right? Um, and there's normally just this like, you know, I don't want to say twinkle in the eye, but there's just like, <laughs> You know, they they almost are looking past you like they have a vision for where they want to be. Um, and I think those are the entrepreneurs where we fall in love with the entrepreneur before we even really like figure out the business. Yeah. And there's no doubt that, 
you're when you're investing your money, you're not just investing your money in the idea. You're investing the money in that guy that's giving you the pitch. I mean, that's why, you know, I would say over the last five years, we have invested in many more entrepreneurs that come from a military background, an intelligence community background, or worked in a major national lab or research university. Yeah. And I mean, that's very, it's, it's a very good point to make is um, you've got to be, you got to have the right personality to be the one taking your, taking, pitching it to investors and going through that series of fund fundraising. Um, and they've got to have the confidence in you as an individual first and foremost. And then of course the idea has to still be there, but if it's a great idea and they don't like you, then if, the, if it's not the right person, then you're probably still not investing in it. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so, and going back to what you said about lifestyle businesses, you know, a lot of lifestyle businesses, that is the right answer for a lot of guys getting out of the military. I mean, totally. They don't, you don't want to do, uh, take something and all the way through and go public. You know, if you, uh, a lot of great businesses or lifestyle businesses, you can make more, way more money than you did when you were in the military. You can have a great family life and, you know, it could even be a family business for that matter. So, there's yeah. tons of great ideas out there that are, would be considered lifestyle businesses that are, you're never going to get investors in. But and and uh, and I would say to any of the veterans listening that that are wondering whether or not they have a viable lifestyle business, will it generate reoccurring cash without a lot of work over and over to keep the same customer again? Right? Mm-hmm. Like you know, I'm always amazed at the, you know, I just moved to Austin, Texas, and there is a car wash every 500 feet, right? (laughs) And I am amazed at how much business those car washes do, right? Mm -hmm. Every single day. And you know what? Some of them are people that bought annual or monthly passes. That's $400. Can you imagine you go to the car wash? It's got a machine. Wow. Right, somebody pays you four hundred dollars up front, and then and then and then when their car is really dirty, then they pay you more to detail it or hand wax it or whatever. I mean, it's really amazing. So I I think I want to own a car wash, not here. <laughs> I mean, not Breaking Bad, but I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but it's really amazing. Like there there are just some businesses. Um, that make a ton of money that are super easy. Yeah, that's. I mean, it, it's crazy. And uh, you know, the other thing along those lines of car washes is uh, storage units. Oh, that's the other one. I I like storage units, and I I think there's also a shortage of cold storage um, um, with all the food that's now getting moved and all that. It's really. I have a company that distributes um, organic meat and sustainable seafood over the internet. And so I've spent years looking at the logistics of moving food, um, and there's not enough cold storage. That would be my that would be my assessment. Interesting. And you know, here here's another issue along the ideas of storage units. Um, I've heard of some people already doing this, but basically, storage units or pole barn warehouse type buildings 
that are totally tricked out into phenomenal man caves and in, in she sheds. Cause, cause we're like, you know, we're getting, we're getting close to having the last kid out of the house and we're thinking about downsizing the house, but you, you want to downsize the house, but you don't necessarily want to get rid of all your stuff yet. So what, what's the alternative? Well, pack it all in a storage unit. I like, I like your man cave storage unit idea. Yes. Yeah, there's guys, there are people already doing it, but, um, you know, we were looking at getting a condo down in Florida for wintertime, whatever. But if a lot of people want to downsize the house early, but if you, if you, you don't want to get rid of your classic car or your motorcycle, or you want to get an RV, you need a place to put all that. Oh, and I still want to have my wood shop <laughs> and, and all my tools, you know? So you get this warehouse or this, yeah. you know, this tricked out storage unit and it's functional. Like you show up and use it on a regular basis. It's not just where your stuff stays. It's a functional shop, you know? I like that idea because I have a <laughs> 1977 Airstream that's in Reno. Huh. I have a, a 1967 Mercury Cougar that we got from my father-in-law that's still at the shop getting drivable. Yeah. I, ha- I had to get rid of my motorcycle, my wife told me, but, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, I think you and I are on the same page here. Yeah, and so some of my friends you know, around the same age have been discussing that. But uh, anyways – so roll through the list of uh, companies that you have invested in so far, just so we can hear them. Uh, well, so we've done 82, so it's a lot. Um, some of the ones that we talked about, um, ID.me, Signpost, Unite Us, Nestio, Olapic, Bespoke Post, uh, Everplans, Assurely, Portfolio Watch, um, we have, a uh, Virtuix Omni seed invest. I should probably actually just look at my website and read them, but you know, we, we've done quite a few, um, we invested, um, you know, we've been investing over the last, I guess, almost 10 years, my personal money. And then it, it went into, um, you know, kind of investor money. In our new portfolio, we've done DeepSig, Anno.ai, um, Cyrecon, DICE, and what else is in that fund? Who am I missing? Oh, Visual Vocal. Hmm. Wow. Now, now as, a, as an institutional investor, the big payout, is when one of those goes public, right? Yeah, I mean, I was the first check into Olapic, and um, we sold that company about four years later for 149 million, and we made we made real money on that deal. So, if it never goes public, if if a bigger company snatches it up, then that's a pretty good payday for you too. Yeah, it all depends what they pay for it, right? <laughs> right exactly. <laughs> but, but yes. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of value in getting an all cash, you know, Olympic was a, an all cash transaction that was really good. Yeah. And in the, in the investor game, um, I've talked with, uh, uh, angel investors in the past and they're like, well, out of 10, you invest in one or two might be the home run. You know, you may have three or four that, 
stay middle of the road for a while and may function for quite a while, but maybe never, maybe you might get your money back or even make some money. And then you're always going to have, you know, maybe a couple three total, total failures. I mean, but obviously if you're good enough, then every, everyone you invest in becomes a home run. So like with, with you, like, you know, that just doesn't happen. I wish it did. (laughs) No matter how good you are. Yeah. It doesn't matter how good you are. And I think the other thing is you, there's, um, you know, there's a level of being emotionally detached that, um, I don't always have. Um, you know, you get vested in these entrepreneurs, right? Especially when you've spent, you know, um, a long time trying to, you know, build their company and they're just, you know, they don't listen or they do listen and then they do something stupid and, they inevitably need more money and then you're like, Oh, you know, what am I going to do? It's, it's a real, it's a real emotional roller coaster for sure. So you typically run into the scenario. Oftentimes I hate to always refer to TV shows, but like the profit, you know, how often do you want, how often is it that the entrepreneur is just can't get out of their own way? <laughs> It's the entrepreneur, it's the business owner's fault that the business isn't doing well. And they have somebody like the profit come in and tell them, and it's like, dude, change this. And they don't even want to change. Yeah. I mean, we get there before the profit gets there, right? So (laughs) he's going into businesses that have been mismanaged, right? That's where he's able to find value. We try to get into the businesses when they just get started. um, And you know, we hope that that's gonna, you know, that's going to be the key is, you know, part of why entrepreneurs pick us over other people's money is because they think we might know what we're doing. Um, with, you know, building companies, right? That's the key. But do you still run into that same scenario where Absolutely. they won't listen to you and you know what they're doing is wrong or they're going in the it's wrong called direction? the entrepreneurial dumbass phenomenon. <laughs> you know, they have all these amazing, they have all these amazing advisors and everybody around them and they don't, you know, they don't want to listen. Mm-hmm. And normally there's, you know, listen, there's four things that kill early stage companies without fail, running out of capital, bad critical hire on the early team, bad early investor, bad anchor customer or partner. Hmm. Any one of those things can crater an early stage company, especially running out of capital, which is pretty obvious. But a lot of times, um, and I always caution entrepreneurs about this. A lot of times when a, when a management team isn't optimally functioning, they normally have a, a person in the flow that um, is part of that problem, right? It's like mm-hmm. the person that acts as CFO, but also helps with biz dev, but also coordinates a bunch of stuff for the CEO, right? Like mm-hmm. that person's invaluable. Well, actually that person sounds like they're trying to figure out what their real value is. Mm-hmm. So they're doing a whole bunch of different stuff. Yeah. And a lot of times that person is like, the CEO really, it's the CEO's person, right? It's like the most expensive, like self-confidence presence in the company. 
And a lot of times when we find that person not performing and we bring it up with the CEO, the CEO, he or she will get very defensive. Um, and that's a hundred percent confirmation that that person needs to go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I imagine that's fascinating to be able to, you're looking at it from an arm's length, but yet you have an inside view and you see the dynamics of that kind of thing going on. I imagine after you've seen that a couple of times from that perspective, it's an amazing head of sales, man or woman or whatever he or she will be able to communicate what the plan is. They'll be able to talk through the pipeline. They'll be able to talk about how they're building the sale. Like there's just like a good salesperson. There's just certain basic things that they do and definitely things that they do when they have their first board meeting or their first call with investors. And so if we get a, a sales leader that doesn't do those things and gets defensive and they're getting caught up to speed or they're going to do it. It immediately means that head of sales has got to go. And it normally takes the CEO like six to 12 months to come to terms with us after they miss all their numbers. And you know, this is why, and so-and-so said they were doing this, but they didn't. And, and you know, as investors, we just kind of shrug our shoulders and we're like, yeah, mm -hmm. I told you that 11 months ago. Wow. Um, and it's not about us being smarter. It's that the reason you want to listen to us is because myself and Wes and you know, we just have experience, right? We have experience as operators, right? We've run our own sales biz dev pipelines, right? Like, I mean, it's just, and it's such a critical function. No investor has ever got upset that the head of sales has outperformed. Hmm. ever right um and very very rarely does that happen because building sales in a in a new early stage business super difficult which is even more the reason you need somebody with the right skill sets yeah wow well you know unfortunately we're getting towards the end of our time so if somebody wanted to know more about what you guys do at scout ventures how would they find you scoutventures.com or you can read my blog at uh, mayorbrad.com. Mayor Brad? Yeah, it's actually, everybody thinks it's like uh, from the mayor of Tribeca, which is where I used to live. But it's actually, when I ran this, uh, this role player thing when I was in the army, I was, uh, my, my role player name was the mayor of Terrytown. <laughs> so my, my good friend, Joe Peters, who was from Boston would walk around and every time I would walk into the room, he would go, the mayor is here. The mayor is here. <laughs> so that, that started in 97 and it just kind of stuck. And so when I started my blog, I had Joe Peter's name in the background. All right. Well, you're the first mayor I've had on the podcast then. Good. I, I hope to bring joy and happiness to all the people. <laughs> Well, hey, Brad, uh, I want to give you the last word. You know, if you're talking to somebody still in the military, going through a transition, just got out, and they really want to get out and either start their own lifestyle business or become an entrepreneur, run their own show, what kind of advice would you have for them? Yeah, so I would say get out there. 
go to some events in your local community. There will be events for veteran entrepreneurs with experienced veteran entrepreneurs. Um, whether it's, you know, someone like myself, um, at a, you know, whether we do a vet con or a Patriot boot camp or, you know, we try to support there's a, every year there is a, a veteran business battle at rice university. So you can look up vet biz battle at rice, you know, scout and a bunch of, uh, moonshots, capital, uh, TFX and a bunch of venture capital guys um, that support, um, veteran entrepreneurship are normally part of it. Um, and we do that in conjunction with a, a group of investors out of Houston at Rice University. Um, it's normally in April. Um, so vet biz battle. And then, you know, listen, I, I get a lot of email, but an entrepreneur can always shoot me a note, brad at scoutventures.com. I don't always have time to talk to everybody, but I can normally point people in the right direction. Outstanding. Well, hey, Brad, uh, look forward to you guys' future success, and thanks for sharing all those golden nuggets of wisdom. It was awesome. And uh, that's it for now. So these two veterans are Oscar Mike. Thank you for listening to Veteran on the Move, your pathfinder to freedom. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are always greatly appreciated. So until next time, this veteran is Oscar Mike. <laughs>